our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. My goal in this deposition was to be truthful, but not particularly helpful. Welcome to Unspun, the podcast that makes you better at finding the truth. The way people get news is changing. It used to be that there were many reporters who would research stories and write articles, but now politicians and famous people share information directly with you on social media and the internet. That means you find out things fast, but it's up to you to make sure the information's actually accurate. And newsmakers don't always do their part. The temptation to manipulate information is strong. They bend the truth to deceive so that they can avoid accountability, so that they can advance their agendas. When you recognize these agendas, you can sometimes find out what's real. And we're at a crossroads where anyone can share anything online. So it's important to sharpen your critical thinking skills. Finding that deception before it goes viral is pretty much a survival skill now. And we're going to do it together. Let's get unspun. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unspun. Let's talk about appeals to hypocrisy. Maybe I don't clean my walk. It gets icy, and you slip and are hurt. When you sue me, I argue, well, 85 people a year get hurt ice fishing. I don't see you getting all worked up about that. That's an appeal to hypocrisy. Listen to this example from a Supreme Court confirmation hearing where candidate Brett Kavanaugh addresses Senator Amy Klobuchar. You said sometimes you had too many drinks. Uh, was there ever a time when you drank so much that you couldn't remember what happened or part of what happened the night before? I, I, no, I remember what happened, and I think you've probably had beers, Senator, and, and so... So I, you're saying there's never been a case where you drank so much that you didn't remember what happened the night before or part of what happened? That's, you're asking about, yeah, blackout. I don't know, have you? Could you answer the question, Judge? I just, so you, that's not happened. Is that your answer? Yeah, and I'm curious if you have. I have no drinking problem, Judge. Yeah, nor do I. Okay, thank you. You can hear Kavanaugh try to turn the tables on the senator, asking if she ever drank to excess. The long pauses are places where the senator was actually speechless at the candidates trying to turn the questions on her. Even if Senator Klobuchar regularly was blackout drunk, that still would not explain or justify potential behavior from the judge. The attempt to appeal to hypocrisy is a common tactic in political debates and interviews. It happens when a person tries to justify their own questionable behavior by pointing out that someone else has done the same thing or worse. The reasoning is bad, but it often succeeds at distracting from the real issue. For example, a student accused of plagiarism might defend themselves by arguing that the teacher is guilty of cheating too, so the student should not receive a zero. Even if the claim about the teacher is true, it does not make the student's plagiarism acceptable. You can often spot this when someone responds to criticism with the words, what about? This whataboutism redirects attention instead of providing a defense. It turns the accusation back on the accuser. It can be bad both that people get injured ice fishing and that you are hurt because of my negligence. The fact that two things can both be bad is a defining feature of an appeal to hypocrisy. So let's try to detect one in today's warm-up. Have a listen. As I prepared, I said, what is the crime? Because when you're talking about impeachment, you're talking about high crimes or misdemeanors. And I, I can't seem to find the crime. And honestly, no one has testified of what crime they believe the president of the United States has committed. But when we start talking about things that look like evidence, 
They want to act like they blind. They don't know what this is. These are our national secrets. Looks like in the to me. This looks like more evidence of our national secrets, say on a stage at Mar-a-Lago. When we're talking about somebody that's committed high crimes, it's at least indictments, let's say 32 counts related to unauthorized retention of national security secrets, seven counts related to obstructing the investigation, three false statements, one count of conspiracy to defraud the United States, falsifying business records, conspiracy to defraud the United States, two counts related to efforts to obstruct the vote certification proceedings, one count of conspiracy to violate civil rights, 23 counts related to forgery or false document statements, eight counts related to soliciting, and I could go on because he's got 91 counts pending right now, but I will tell you what the president has been guilty of. He has unfortunately been guilty of loving his child unconditionally, and that is the only evidence that they have brought forward. And honestly, I hope and pray that my parents love me half as much as he loves his child. Until they find some evidence, we need to get back to the people's work, which means keeping this government open so that people don't go hungry in the streets of the United States. And I will yield. Did you hear it? Why are we talking about Biden when Trump did all these bad things? That's an appeal to hypocrisy. It's sometimes called whataboutism. For example, why are we talking about Hunter Biden when Jared Kushner did X, Y, and Z? You know, it's true that people are hypocrites. A lot. Especially in politics. But that doesn't prove anything about what you did or are doing. You still have to prove that. This whataboutism is common in politics, and it often works because the thing the other person is doing is truly objectionable. You'll also sometimes see this when officials will say it's okay to have vindictive legislation because the other party did bad things when they were in control. We see that a lot here where I live in North Carolina. Last I checked, two wrongs still did not add up to a right, so appealing to hypocrisy probably won't get you out of trouble. And speaking of trouble, since the days of Cambridge Analytica, we've seen trouble brewing when companies collect and misuse data from users. When we come back, my guest and I will talk about when you use online media, who collects your data? Why and how? We'll be right back. Okay, so my guest this week is William Moner. And so, William, can you please introduce yourself? Hi, uh, Amanda. It's nice to be here. I am the uh, director of customer experience insights for SiriusXM. And we, um, you know, we're the satellite radio company, uh, typically and traditionally, but uh, we also own Pandora, uh, the uh, audio uh, app, um, the internet radio app, uh, as it used to be known. And uh, we have also uh, grown a great deal in podcasting uh, itself, too. So uh, SiriusXM is becoming this, you know, this audio platform for all sorts of different types of content. Oh, really interesting. Mm -hmm. So can you tell me just sort of like on the day to day, what kind of things do you actually do for your job? So customer experience is uh, basically any interaction that you might have with um, with us as a uh, customer, as a, if you are interested in, in a trial or a subscription or making changes to your account or uh, doing something uh, both outside or inside the app. Uh, that has to do with how we um, how we look at your customer information, then uh, that would be considered customer experience. And so what I do is 
Um, I look at those audiences. I, I issue surveys and conduct surveys on the website. And then we partner across the organization to look at um, if you've called in for voice support or chat support uh, or even technical support, we'll look at uh, how you've interacted with us across different platforms to see you know, how we can make your experience better. Not you necessarily individually, although that's certainly a goal, but to improve the overall customer experience. Okay. So when it comes to you know, tracking and information that companies might collect on me as someone who uses a product. I'm really interested. How do companies actually know what it is that people watch or what they listen to? Like, how does that data kind of, where does it come from? So if you're thinking about listening data, uh, it really depends on uh, the way you're listening. So uh, one of the troubles that SiriusXM has had in terms of understanding how our customers listen is that as a satellite radio company, we're much more like a traditional radio company. It's broadcast. So we broadcast out to receivers and there's no data coming back to us about what you've listened to, what channels you've switched to or anything like that. But when you use the app, then there's much more of a two-way flow of information. I almost said conversation, but it's not really a conversation. It's a, it's a two-way flow of information between what you've selected and then what we've provided to you. And then we can start to understand the trends and, and how people um, might be listening or, or finding information or, or whatever it is that they might want to do. So does the app just sort of keep records on what I do or how does that work? Yeah, um, it does. It does. It, it's, um, it's disambiguated from you as a listener. It's very difficult for somebody at the company to like go in and, find, you know, Amanda's listening history, you know, you have to have a certain level of access to be able to get into that. And some, a lot of that stuff is encrypted behind the scenes. So um, it's, you know, it's treated, I would say with, um, with some concern and consideration for your privacy in that regard, but in aggregate, uh, we can then figure out. Um, so you're listening to a show there are 10,000 other people who are listening to that show. You know, what types of aggregate data can we find out about these types of listeners? And so in aggregate, there might be 10,000 people listening. Uh, of that 10,000, maybe there's 6,000 women, 4,000 men. Um, maybe there's, you know, people of certain socioeconomic um, descriptors or distinctions. We also look at psychographic data, which means uh, for psychographic data, that's basically... Uh, anything that's not demographic that we can understand about you. So demographics are, you know, um, your age, your uh, location, et cetera. Um, but psychographics are more behavioral sorts of things. Are you, um, are you more likely to be a news or talk listener, like maybe some of your uh, listeners are? Um, are you more likely to... Uh, listen to true crime podcasts? Are you more likely to um, listen to a, you know, a um, sports broadcast, uh, you know, that sort of thing. So we can start to understand in aggregate what those trends are across our listening population. Um, so once you get that data, then, so what's its purpose? Why do you collect that data? Sure. I mean, you know, I think it's in the service of two things. One is to improve 
the product that we deliver. So if more people are looking for true crime podcasts, are certainly our executives are going to want to go out and look for true crime podcast talents and establish shows so that we can make some deals and get those on the air and hopefully move those into um, our our podcast audience space. Um, in addition to that, there's also advertising, you know, matching an advertiser who wants to get a product or service in front of an audience to the, um, to the demographics and psychographics that they want to attract. So, um, you know, this is the reason why you see mortgages and life insurance going to um, podcasts that are, you know, uh, approaching an older demographic versus, you know, a younger demographic, you might get advertisements for events or excursions or vacations or something like that. And so um, it's trying to match what an advertiser's goal is with the goal of the company. Okay. Um, so is the kind of information that you get, is it like general information, right? So like I have a podcast, obviously. So is your information like how many times it's downloaded or do you know like more specific stuff, like, you know, how far into it they listen or if they skip or those kind of things? Yeah, we, I mean, we know a lot about that. For SiriusXM, we're a little bit different than, uh, say, a Spotify or an Apple Podcasts because um, most of our most of our programs are what we would call audio on demand, which is maybe a rebroadcast of something that had appeared on one of our media partners, like MSNBC or CNN or Fox. Um, you know, from, from their talk radio programs. And those become very popular for us. Um, and then, you know, we also look at podcasts and uh, in, in, in seeing how people uh, interact with those. So there's the uh, how many times somebody has started listening to a podcast. So if they, um, you know, if we find that of 100,000 listeners, let's say that 10,000 of those people have started a particular podcast, and that's, that's pretty good, right? Um, that's a pretty good share of a hundred thousand listeners. But if, um, you know, it, within that, how many people have listened all the way through, you know, have, have listened for a, a substantial amount of time. Um, and then, you know, some, some factors around that in terms of understanding the demographics and psychographics of that audience. Okay. So as you know, I sometimes teach kind of analytics kind of things to my students. And one of the things that, they're usually surprised about is sort of how much information is collected on the behaviors that they have with media, right? If you do it with an electronic device, probably your information's being collected. And one thing they often ask me is, well, you know, can they do that? Do people give permission for that? So it's my impression that the permission is inside those big, long user agreements that you uh, maybe don't read all of before you click OK. <laughs> but is that the case? Do people give information for that or sorry, permission for that? So yeah, I, if you have downloaded the app and you have started to use the app on your phone, um, and this is, goes for any app, this is not just uh, any of our apps, um, you are giving permissions uh, from your phone uh, to collect certain types of data as a listener. There are things that you can opt out of, and you, you do have the ability on, uh, on the phone to opt out of certain types of permissions for data collection. Um, and so that's on, that's on the app side of things. You know, if, if somebody is a visitor to our website, you know, there are, uh, you, you've seen this on, 
every website because it's a requirement. You have to put a warning up. If you're going to collect any user information on a website, you have to put a warning up whether um, what people's options are for accepting cookies, right? And so if you have accepted the use of cookies on a website, generally that means that you've opted into ad tracking networks that are able to serve across multiple companies to understand your behaviors across all of these internet sites. So uh, if you've logged into a site using Facebook as probably the most primary example, you use Facebook login uh, on a site and you've gone to a website and you've visited um, that website and you accept cookies, well, Facebook, um, Facebook's identifier for you is also tracking you on that website and so then you'll start to see ads in Facebook for the products that you looked at on that website because there's some knowledge between those two sites. And that's through a third-party advertising network. And um, so in terms of being able, like, I, I know people worry about their, like, pinpointed personal information uh, in those scenarios. Like, oh, my goodness, these, these phones are listening to me. These, 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 the Alexa is listening to me. I'm sorry if I just triggered half the Alexa devices in the world, but, um, Alexa is listening to me. Right. So, uh, that is true, but the way the data is shared is through, um, these aggregators that don't necessarily look at you, the person kind of look at you, the profile, and kind of track your behaviors across uh, across those those uh, those facts. So, I got a couple of follow up questions to that. Then, yeah. So, first of all, from the audience who might not know what a cookie is, what is a cookie? What am I giving you permission to do? <laughs> um, so, a cookie is basically a unique identifier that, when you access a website or a um, a web service or uh, you know something with a digital footprint over the internet, a cookie is that it is a specific identifier that will allow uh, the site to know that you have been there before and will allow the site to then um, pull your history of being on that website from their servers. And then in, in, terms of, um, in terms of the different cookie types, there are several, but essentially there are different identifiers for different types of things. So my first recommendation is if somebody isn't, is not familiar with cookies, uh, who's listening to this, go to any website and whenever the bottom banner pops up uh, to ask you if you've accepted cookies, once you click on that, you'll see all of the different types of cookies that can be tracked. And so there are what websites call essential cookies, which allow the website to function properly to serve you in the best possible way. And those are usually cookies that are limited to just that particular website. The ones that are, I'm describing that cut across like Facebook's um, cookie infrastructure or they like a pixel, there's a, a thing called a pixel that can help track across websites. It's the same basic concept as a cookie. It, they're, they're called uh, third-party trackers. And those are services that take the information that is generated by your visit to that website and then aggregate, aggregate it back to a third-party system that identifies you along with other behaviors that you've, um, you've taken on the internet. It's my understanding also a cookie is like it's a little piece of information that you're giving permission to be put on your computer so they can go look for it when they come back again. 
Is that a fair way to describe it? Yes. Yes. So you do, you do have to give permission and you can be very selective about what you can, what you do and don't receive on your browser. Um, but when it comes to apps, uh, there are certain, there are certain safeguards that are put in place from the app stores. So like the Apple app store and the platform on iOS, um, there are permissions that you can set on your phone to make sure that no apps can use those types of tracking, um, you know, tracking indicators on your phone. Um, Same thing with Google Play uh, store uh, apps. You can uh, go into your settings and and change some of those settings to to change app behaviors. But um, most people don't, you know, and so that's it's it's a matter of what the defaults are uh, in your particular region and in, at least in the United States, um, the app stores are very permissive as far as what companies can gather. Hmm. Yeah, so maybe I'll try to find a couple articles about that and I'll put that in the show notes then. I think that might be interesting for people. But then I have a question for you on the other side. So if, um, if it's getting harder to get people's data, right? Because they can say no, on the website or because they can go in and get these, uh, you know, set these permissions on their phone or whatever. Does that make your job harder? Um, I, you would think, you would think it would make it harder if we didn't have um, complete information, but it, 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 in all honesty, it really doesn't make it harder. We would love as a company to know every single thing about our customers. Now, as an ethical human being, I don't want to know very much at all about, our customers. In fact, I often bristle whenever I see somebody who has like written in the comments on a survey to contact them and they've written their account number and their email address and all of these other things. And it's like, well, if you're giving me that information just in an open form on a survey, that means that you're not being very safe with the information you're providing on the internet. So that makes me bristle. And that makes me concerned because, you know, once those bits of information are in plain text, they're not encrypted, they're not like being safeguarded and companies are not um, held, uh, held to, you know, their, their feet are not being held to the fire in terms of regulating and, and pr- safeguarding privacy with that information. Uh, that's whenever I, that's whenever I get really concerned. Uh, so I don't want to see it. I know my coworkers are, especially anybody who processes credit card payments or uh, anything like that, any third party. Well, we don't want any of that stuff to go out to third parties. So we have to be very disciplined about what information we can use and and share in aggregate. Because if we share too much, um, then we're we're not only liable for that, we are not um, acting ethically with that data. Okay. So there are some ethics for the field then? I should hope so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I have another question then. Um, do the things that someone watches or listens to affect what they see next? Well, yes. I mean, well, to be honest with you, I mean, that's what Pandora as a radio service started as. You know, if you're listening to a song and you click thumbs up on a song on Pandora, it recommends you a song that fits nicely with that song that you hit thumbs up on, right? And that's at its very basic, 
that's the type of functionality that um, algorithmic systems are looking for. It's being able to recommend something based on a previous action that a user has taken. Um, so yes, absolutely. And is it optimal? Probably not. You know, I'm sure we've all had those moments where we're like, this is not at all what I wanted to listen to, or this is not what I wanted to read or see or anything like that. But is it better than, you know, uh, in terms of Pandora radio, is it better than a DJ somewhere picking a song that we're not going to like afterwards? And then we have to change the channel, right? Like that's uh, how, you know, how far do you want to go with, with that um, in terms of, uh, in terms of optimizing those systems. So, um, but yes, the algorithms will recommend things and sometimes we will get it right and sometimes we'll get it wrong. Do you think that um, the tracking and the, the determining what you get from what is tracked is good for society? That is a very challenging question <laughs> to answer. Um, I, I, I probably would either be um, the most evil mastermind, if I knew the answer to that question, or um, be able to solve all the world's problem problems. I, I don't know the answer. There's a danger to allowing um, algorithms to make decisions on humans' behalf, right? Um, because as we get deeper into um, machines that learn, so artificial intelligence. Uh, machine learning, uh, you know, large language models, LLMs. These are uh, the things that are, that OpenAI and ChatGPT are based on. These, uh, these these things that aggregate a whole bunch of information and put them all into one place, and then train a machine to respond in a certain way. Uh, there's a danger if you're allowing too much information in that has not been vetted or um, has not been run through what we might consider a reliable source, right? So um, this is, you know, there have been companies that have seen uh, ill effects of this already. So um, if you've trained your information uh, for an AI system on Reddit data, well, you know, Reddit data is anybody can post, so we don't know who the authorities are on that. Quora is the same way. You know, anybody can respond. And so if you've trained your AI model on public data, then you are going to get a, a mess of information that may not, be, um, may not be clear and may be corrupted by too many voices of people who have the time, energy, and incentive to add, as, as you're, you're an expert in, to add misinformation into these systems. So, so clearly there's going to be bias there in terms of how the model is trained. Um, so is it good for society? Not without discipline. But I think there's some good for society if there are professionals who are able to uh, train the models, use the models, learn from them, and retrain them to improve them. So, I, you know, I would I would venture to say that, you know, something like uh, 
conveniently I'll use something like Pandora as the example. Um, we have professional musicologists who listen to every song and tag them and verify uh, verify these things or a, a certain set of songs. I can't they can't listen to every song that's ever been published, but you know there's um, there are ex- experts who are looking at these things. And then if if there's an anomaly, these experts go in and they say, well, how can we make this better, right? And they keep continuing to train. Um, this system to get better and better and better over the course of time. So now we're 15 years into this product or maybe even more. Uh, you're looking at a system that really knows um, in some way what to serve to somebody as their next step. But that's because there's good data. Garbage in, garbage out, right? If you put garbage into a system, you're going to get garbage out. Uh, and if you put valuable, uh, enriching information into a system, then you're going to get valuable, enriching information out. It might not look the same as when it went in. It might be better in some ways. It might be worse in some ways, but it still has a good baseline of of, of accuracy or at least <laughs> at least uh, you know reputable information that might be put into that system. Okay. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, kind of from your perspective, where do you think user analytics is going to be going maybe in the near future? And if you want to forecast even further into maybe the more distant future? Yeah, I think in terms of AI and, um, you know, learning systems and, and that sort of thing, you know, I, I think it, it, there's there's a sense that things will get worse before they get better. Um in, in a lot of these systems. Um, but I think one of the places you might look if you're really, if you really want to see where, where things are going, I mean, we're, we, we, we've been doing a lot of work to try and figure out what, um, what automated chatbots can do to help us out. You know, so how do we, uh, you know, if a customer comes to the website and, and needs to do something um, with SiriusXM, what do we, uh, allow them to do through a chatbot, and how um, how accurate can those responses be from that chatbot? Is, is, are customers getting the right information? And then we'll survey afterwards to see if we're doing a good job. And if we're doing a good job, then great. And if we're not, hopefully the survey respondents are telling us something that we can act on and then improve that system. Okay. Is there anything I haven't asked you that I should have? So something that you could have asked me that you didn't is... Um, with regard to AI systems, you know, artificial intelligence, uh, are we going to lose pace with AI and um, lose out on opportunities to, you know, these these systems that are going to take away jobs or something like that? And I think there's always this idea that there will be fear around new machines coming into place, but I can say with fair certainty that um, any new machine that has ever been invented has always made more jobs than it ever intended to take away. Um, you think about how many data processing jobs and analysts, analytics jobs there are, and just how much people need to uh, maintain these systems and make changes to them and optimize them and make business decisions or make social decisions or government or policy decisions around them, you know, Machines are 
are here to make our lives easier in some ways, but they certainly do cause a lot of problems um, and unintended consequences down the road. So um, AI is not taking jobs. AI might actually be the ultimate job creation machine uh, when it comes down to it. Well, William Hunter, thank you so much for joining me on Unspun this week, and I hope you have a wonderful day. All right. Thank you, Amanda. It was great. Thanks for getting Unspun with me this week. Unspun is a production of me, Amanda Sturgill, and is a proud member of the MSW Media family of podcasts. Send me your thoughts and ideas about trickery in the news on Gmail at theunspunpodcast at gmail.com. I even write back. And find this episode's show notes and more information at theunspunpodcast.substack.com. Want to learn more and get smarter? Check out my book, Detecting Deception, Tools to Fight Fake News, which is available on Amazon or your favorite online bookseller. And until next time, stay sharp, everyone.